Hello all and the warmest of welcomes to another instalment of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, still the premier North Wales spare room based cat interfering delve into the more obscure, often forgotten tales of the macabre, the unbelievable from all corners of the UK and Ireland. Dragging the depths for these and bringing them to you is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. You guys are the reason that I do what I do, what I love to do. It's fabulous as it always is having you joining me in Peaks today. I mustn't forget Peaks as well. And I hope that as you find us, then you and all yours are all good and you're all well. So big thanks out firstly this time around for the feedback received concerning our recent two-part tale here on The Enthusiast, Angel Face and the Muscle Man. Now it's definitely one of my favourite tales to have done that one is. It's up there with personal favourite episodes like The Feathers and the Golden Flute or The Princess and the Magnificent Seven from last series this one is. And the reception I've had about it from you guys has been amazing so I gather that you thought the same. So cheers all, I'm glad that you liked it. I certainly love bringing it to you. Thanks also to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show who have joined this time around with shout outs going out to Amanda Rhymes. Ian Flintum and Anne, who have renewed their pledges, and Draco2008 and Barbara Errington, who have opted to annually support the show. Thank you so much all, your support is so kind, it really is. Now if like these guys you want some show stuff heading out to you, or you're intrigued by the names of tales such as The Beauty in the Bikini, or Sanctuary, perhaps Obsession by the Sea, or the latest offering, Suffer the Little Children, and you want to hear these and more, then it really couldn't be simpler to do. The link to the show's Patreon site is in the episode show notes each week, or it's the True Crime Enthusiast podcast if you want to search it out on Patreon. It's got the same show logo and everything. Just head over there, choose your tier, and you're away for some 20-plus unreleased bonus episodes that are available, and there are some right tales in that lot, I tell you. So before we begin with our selected tale then, I must also pass on my heartfelt gratitude to everybody who's kindly donated to the show fundraiser for Macmillan Cancer Support that I created at the start of the year to raise funds for them following the loss of my dad just before Christmas. Now that fundraiser has ended as it could only be set for a certain period of time, but I've now created a show's Just Giving page to support the same good cause. Because these people, what they do is truly amazing, as I'm sure many of you know. And details, should you wish to donate, even if you just wish to share it somewhere, it all helps folks. And details can be found in the show's Facebook discussion group, or going forward, there's a link to it in the episode show notes each time around. So I'm trying to ease off on the pre-case waffle at the start, and once I've done my regular thanks because that doesn't get eased off on at all, I want to hit the ground running with the tale that I've chosen to look at. I'm not saying I won't interject at random points in the tale or go off on tangents, you know I am by now, but I'll call it as I see it, and if I feel the need to chip in, then I'll chip in. Now the tale I've selected here is one that I came across when I was researching a past Patreon episode, and that I bookmarked for a future show one, because it's a tale that features a true monster, and who I considered was the perfect fit for this series Monsters Of episode. This individual... I certainly couldn't think of a more apt word to describe, at least none that I can hear here. Now the overall tale will time jump in points, it will stretch back to look as far as the mid-1970s, and as far forward as 2016, 
but our focus initially is the mid-1990s, where we're off to the town of Kilmarnock in the county of Ayrshire in Scotland. Now I didn't set out planning this tale to be a two-parter, because I know we've just had one after all, but there's so much to the tale, that to do it proper justice, I find it best to do so. What can I say, I don't believe you can ever research too much, and it's how I roll here after all. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use your discretion whilst listening in all. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the first part of a two-part Monsters Of episode, this time Monsters Of Ayrshire, with an episode entitled Mary's Story. The largest town in the county of Ayrshire in the southwest of Scotland, today Kilmarnock has a population of almost 50,000 people and has claims to fame that it's where the first collected works of celebrated Scottish poet Robert Burns was published, is the home of Johnny Walker Whiskey, is where love them or loathe them, top-hating and shit-tattoo-loving band Biffy Clyro were formed back in 1995, but my favourite stat this time around is it's where the song Ballroom Blitz by The Sweet originated in 1973 after the band had played at the Grand Hall there and were driven off stage after they'd had bottles thrown at them. Think that scene in the Blues Brothers, you know what I mean. Now when I was researching, this was tied for a favourite with a fact about Ayrshire itself, the county that Kilmarnock is in. And I can kind of do both here because it is my show after all in that Presswick Airport in Ayrshire can claim itself as the only place in Britain that Elvis Presley was ever known to have stepped foot on in 1960 when the US Air Force transport plane that was carrying him home to the United States stopped to refuel there en route from Germany. Thank you very much. Now Kilmarnock Academy, a state-funded secondary school which is today located in the New Farm Lock estate area of the town, also has a claim to fame as it's one of a small number of schools in the UK that can claim to have educated multiple Nobel laureates, including John Boydore, the first Director General of the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization, and Alexander Fleming, the discoverer of penicillin. Today, the Academy educates more than 1,200 pupils, while strongly promoting four values, these being respect, valuing one another and treating everyone fairly, determination, encouraging perseverance and promoting a can-do attitude, compassion, showing sympathy, kindness and a willingness to help others, and integrity, being true to yourself, honest and behaving in a way that shows strong moral principle. Back in the early 1990s, one pupil who was a shining example of all four of these was Mary Julian, who had started at the academy at the turn of the decade and had gone on to become a well-respected, capable, and very liked pupil there. From a young age, with its genesis beginning when she was a youngster attending Lonehead Primary School, Mary had one dream, one goal, which was to become a nurse. It was a focus that she carried with her into her first year at the academy, where she soon strengthened and developed into her characteristics the school values that came naturally to her and which would have undoubtedly stood her in good stead to succeed in her chosen career. The kind-hearted, genuine nature, her patience and willingness to befriend anyone, made other people gravitate towards her, winning her many friends, who using youth speak at the time, described her as brand new, 
and his striking looks, a natural prettiness, and her long flowing curly red hair meant that she was not short of admirers by any means. This was a girl that really turned heads. But there were two people especially that Mary divided her time between. Mary's best friend, who she'd made and become inseparable from all, from almost the first day of secondary school. Which it does go like sometimes, doesn't it? I mean, my best mate has been just that since we both started school together more than 30 years ago now. And Mary's was a girl named Julie Holland. The two soon became like sisters rather than friends, so much so that their families joked they were joined at the hip and they were so close they went everywhere together. What one did, so did the other. For example, when one got a weekend job at Pino Manka's Chippy in Kilmarnock to earn a spare bit of cash, so did the other, where the two girls soon fitted in with the other staff and became popular. Mary especially described by the owner as being, I quote, a lovely girl from a good family Honest, hard-working, and very reserved. When she wasn't working then, or out with Julie or any of her other friends, Mary would be spending time with her boyfriend, 15-year-old Jim Caldwell. By the approach of Christmas 1995, Jim and 16-year-old Mary had been in a relationship for some seven months, and were nothing but happy, the young lovers growing ever closer as time passed. Their respective parents both liked and encouraged their child suitor, and Jim's mother Moira said later of Mary, I quote, Mary was just like one of the family. She would do anything for you. Truly got it all, this girl. Now sadly, you kind of know this isn't going to end well then, don't you? Skip forward then to Saturday the 16th of December, 1995. As it was the penultimate weekend before Christmas, Christmas festivities were in full swing, with that Saturday no end of hostelries in the area hosting the obligatory works Christmas functions, and at the Palace Theatre on Kilmarnock's Green Street, a pantomime was nearing the end of its run. It was also Julie Holland's grandparents' ruby wedding anniversary, and for a celebration, the Holland family had decided to take them to see Sleeping Beauty at the Palace in which Scottish television star Johnny Beatty was appearing. Yeah, I'd never heard of him either. I looked him up, still none the wiser. Of course, Julie was allowed to take somebody with her, so who else was going to go but Mary, the extended member of the family? And the party had laughed away at the capers on stage, the nudge-nudge, wink-wink type jokes that these things always have, with Julie and Mary joining in on the cusp of adulthood able to get and appreciate the more suggestive risque jokes. Pantos always have jokes for kids and jokes for adults after all, don't they? When the performance had finished shortly after 9pm, as the Holland family and Mary joined the crowds of people leaving the theatre, they separated. Julie's mother was hailing taxis to take the family back home, but as Mary lived in Sampson Avenue, a mile in the opposite direction, she refused the opportunity of a lift telling Julie and her family that to save putting them out, she would make the short walk of a mile home herself on foot. Now, although it was dark, the route that she would take home, the busy London road, was one that she'd done many times before. It was straight and it was well lit. At 16 years of age, she was streetwise and the responsible girl was allowed out until 11pm on weekend evenings also. Now there are conflicting reports as to whether Mary had even turned down the offer of a lift home from her dad, Philip, 
telling him she would walk the short distance home. Now, whatever misgivings Julie or her family had about Mary doing this, they couldn't insist after all, and after saying her thanks and their goodbyes, at about 9.20pm, Mary set off to walk home. Mary's best friend Julie was later to say, I loved her very much. I always tried to protect her, but I didn't protect her well enough that night. By 10pm, when Mary had not arrived home, knowing that the pantomime had finished an hour before, her parents, 47-year-old Philip and 46-year-old Maureen, were concerned. As we've said, Mary was allowed out until 11pm. That curfew gets later as a teenager gets older after all, doesn't it? But she was a conscientious girl and she would have come straight home. Definitely not the type to make her folks unduly worry. She would have at least made a telephone call to ask them if it was okay for plans to change. For example, if she'd opted to instead stay the night at Julie's house. By 30 minutes later, after having telephoned Julie to see if Mary was there with her, who herself was left mystified and somewhat concerned herself about her friend following the call. Maureen was concerned enough to have made the journey Mary would have taken home from the theatre on foot, hoping that she would meet, and certainly scold, her daughter ambling her way back. But there was no sign of Mary on the route. Reaching the theatre, Maureen retraced her steps and making her way back home, was then taken out around Kilmarnock in the car of her elder daughter Claire's boyfriend, Craig. They drove around a succession of side streets, heading along streets where Maureen knew Mary had friends living, thinking, hoping, that she may have detoured to one of these. And they even checked in at Kilmarnock's Crosshouse Hospital, thinking Mary may possibly have been admitted there following an accident, but there was no sign of the girl whatsoever. By 11.45pm, the now frantic Maureen and Philip had reported Mary to police as a missing person. Police officers arrived at the Julian family home soon after receiving the report, and as they comforted and reassured the distraught parents, sat and gleaned a thorough physical description of the missing girl from them, complete with what she was wearing that evening. Dark blue jeans, dark shoes and a light-coloured blouse, and a dark bomber-type jacket with a Hoi Polloi logo on the front. When they'd obtained this, they themselves retraced the journey that Mary would likely have taken, noting the points on it that the route was covered by CCTV, which in 1995 was nowhere near as widespread or indeed as clear as it is today, and then began missing person inquiries with the description of Mary being issued to all on-duty officers and an incident log opened. Now, police inquiries were ultimately to establish several sightings of what seemed to likely be Mary, and all on this direct route of just over a mile from the theatre back to Sampson Avenue. She definitely set off in the direction of home, because 13-year-old Leona Steele, a girl who knew Mary, was on a bus that at 9.40pm was passing the theatre, and she saw Mary, whom she clearly identified due to the long curly red hair and the hoi polloi jacket she was wearing walking in the direction of London Road, a sighting that the driver of the bus, Robert Wilson, could also corroborate. Now, working off the principle that if you're on foot, then you take the quickest, most direct route home in an area you're familiar and comfortable with, and this doesn't just stick to main roads, 
it incorporates footpaths and crossing open expanses of ground also. A Google Street View check of Mary's prospective route home that she would have taken from the theatre then would have her walking along London Road for some distance before cutting left through Nursery Avenue or perhaps even bollarded off Middlemass Drive a bit further along and down either of these onto McKinley Place which both led onto then onto the adjoining Sampson Avenue from here so she should have been home some 15 to 20 minutes after setting off. Both routes look to be about of equal distance and are certainly the most direct routes in my opinion although that is me thinking out loud Mary could equally have stayed on the busier London Road straight all the way to Sampson Avenue. Yet at about 10.30pm a girl wearing a hoi polloi dark jacket very similar to Mary's was seen talking to a dark haired youth near a telephone box on the corner of Melville Street and London Road which would have been about two thirds of her journey home and in between the two cut off points that I mentioned previously. Whilst only a short time after this sighting a girl of similar description to Mary and dressed almost identically was seen sitting on a wall outside the Broomfield Hotel on London Road which was even closer along there to his Sampson Avenue home. Each of these was a crucial sighting amongst others in the days following her disappearance because taking them in sequence if they were sightings of Mary she had indeed almost made it home although had dawdled on the route for at least an hour. Why? Now, the girl and the dark-haired youth who were seen talking were eventually traced and ruled out of the inquiry, but it's never been established if indeed the latter sighting of the girl sat on the wall was actually a sighting of Mary, and if so, why she was still out at that point on her journey home. I would say that as subsequent events came to light, it almost certainly was not Mary, but it's immaterial now, and never now can be established definitively because by the Sunday afternoon, Mary was sadly no longer a missing person. Her disappearance had by that time been elevated to a murder inquiry. Situated on Kilmarnock's McKinley Place, a road which, as I said before, adjoins Sampson Avenue, Middlemass Drive and Nursery Road, there is today located a large and somewhat sprawling West Scotland stagecoach depot. Now I'm sure that the layout and look of the place has changed somewhat over the years, and today the security of the site may have been somewhat improved, but a stagecoach garage or a coach parking facility at that site has been a fixture there for many years, and it was the point that police searching for Mary had reached by the early afternoon of Sunday the 17th of December. A check with all of the girl's friends had drawn a blank and before considering the possibility that Mary had been abducted and taken to a location outside the Kilmarnock area, police were determined to scrutinise and systematically rule out every possible place on the route that she could have taken home that she could be. The stagecoach depot was considered an unlikely possibility but it was an accessible premises on the route so it was examined and it was here that a police officer Police Constable Brian Walls, while searching part of the site that although was now largely wasteland, had at one time been a former vehicle inspection area, discovered a scene from hell. Reports differ as to whether it was inside a disused coal bunker or an old inspection pit that he made his discovery, but what he discovered is abundantly clear. The battered, 
almost naked and violated body of a young woman looked up at him, a resting place just 150 yards from Mary's home. Once death had been certified and the body had been confirmed as being that of the tragic girl, as a crime scene was established and the murder inquiry got underway, Mary's family, who had sat up all night anxiously awaiting the telephone to ring to say, we found her, she's okay, instead were delivered the news that every family must dread in such circumstances. You can't even think about how you would be unless you're in that situation, can you? And it's one that I hope nobody listening ever finds themselves in i mean is to be realistic to give up on your loved one or in that situation will your mind simply cling to hope and refuse to accept or even expect the worst it's simply unimaginable and unenviable and your heart must go out to families having such horror instilled upon them and horror indeed had been instilled upon the julian family the day following the discovery the senior officer in charge of the inquiry, Detective Superintendent Bob Lauder, told the Daily Record newspaper, We believe the attack was sexually motivated. Whilst I don't want to instill panic, I think there are serious concerns and every parent in the area should be aware of where the children are, adolescent or not. Now the subsequent post-mortem, which had been carried out by Dr Ian Gordon at Crosshouse Hospital, was to detail the full extent of horror, but even a cursory glance as Mary was discovered made for a disturbing sight, as you can imagine, and that left little to the imagination of anyone who saw her, that there was a very real danger that this man could or would strike again, leading to the somewhat understated words of Detective Superintendent Lauder to the press. A full description of Mary's injuries was not issued to the press at the time, deemed too horrific for publication. And indeed, when I describe them here, I'm sure you can see why. Mary was found naked, apart from her dark socks, with her shoes discarded nearby, her inside-out jeans and underwear from where they'd been torn off her, and her jacket laying underneath her body, and her black bra used to gag her, the point where the cups met being pulled so tightly to do so, it almost cut into her mouth. She was heavily stained with dirt and bloodstained about the face and body, including having two black eyes, a broken nose, severely chipped teeth, a number of internal injuries, and almost 50 visible cuts and bruises to the face and body. Consistent, it was established at post-mortem, with her being punched or kicked several times, dragged across rough ground and roughly handled, and having her face repeatedly struck against the concrete floor. Although she tried to fight off her attacker, which was demonstrated by the cuts and bruising to her hands and wrists, Mary had also been viciously raped before being further sexually violated with an object and her killer had then completed his disgusting handiwork by garroting the girl with her own blouse, which had been left tightly knotted around her neck. Stuff of nightmares indeed that, isn't it, eh? How horrendous is that? just 150 yards from her home, almost in sight of it. Absolutely awful. The people of Kilmarnock were stunned as details of the 16-year-old's abduction, sexual assault and murder emerged. A young girl's life had been taken in the most horrific of circumstances and the town was left shrouded in a mantle of fear. 
Several terrified parents practically grounded their daughters, not let them out of their sight until the killer was caught, whilst men, both young and old, were eyed suspiciously by lifelong friends as police intensified their hunt for the killer. Care worker Wilma Dick summed up the people of Kilmarnock's feelings at the time when she said, I quote, The Lord wasn't looking after that pretty wee lassie that night, was he? At a press conference that was held at Kilmarnock Police Station on Tuesday the 19th of December, flanked by senior officers, Mary's devastated father Philip, her mother Maureen, and her 21-year-old sister Claire, bravely faced the assembled media as Philip, his voice raw with emotion, said simply, We have got to find out what happened. We must. Please, if anyone saw Mary on Saturday night after she left the Palace Theatre, please let the police know. If anyone knows anything, just come forward. The Julian family then collectively broke down at the press conference, absolutely broken and far too distraught to take any questions. You don't even want to imagine their feeling there, do you? I must have written very similar lines to these in so many of the episodes of the show that I've done, and each time that I do, my heart goes out to the people that I'm writing about. I find the image of people grieving a very lasting one, I really do. Now the resulting murder inquiry was extensive. The standard procedures that make up any murder investigation, the house-to-house inquiries, vehicle checkpoints undertaken and public appeals for information were all made and as the days passed, information began to trickle into the incident room with police beginning to establish sightings of people that they wished to trace and incidents that they considered may possibly be connected with Mary's murder. There were those sightings that I mentioned before, of the girl and the dark-haired youth seen on London Road on the night of the murder, the girl sat on the wall by the hotel, plus two apparent bus spotters. Now I wasn't sure if that was a real thing, so I looked it up, but yes, apparently it is, who'd been sighted nearby to the stagecoach depot where Mary was found early on the Sunday morning. Police also wanted to trace a blonde-haired youth who was seen using a telephone box on the corner of Melville Street at about 9.40pm on the evening of the murder, him being memorable for the amount of money that he put into the phone, and his laughter during the conversation. And five minutes later, a six-foot-tall man wearing dark-coloured clothing, and aged between 35 and 40, who was seen stood near to the entrance of the bus garage where Mary was found, and in the early hours of the Sunday morning, what could possibly have been the same man was seen running across London Road from the direction of Sampson Avenue, ergo from the direction of the murder scene. Now, this was a sighting that police thought especially crucial because reports had also been received that only three days before Mary had been murdered, another young woman, this time a woman slightly older than Mary, being in her 20s, had been stalked by a man as she walked home alone in the evening along London Road, heading in the same direction Mary would have taken, though the man did run off down Nursery Avenue when a car driven by someone she knew slowed down to offer her a lift as she approached the intersection of both London Road and Middlemass Drive. Had Mary's killer been gearing up to attack another woman? By two weeks after the 16-year-old's murder, more than 100 detectives were working round the clock in a bid to catch a killer, and the investigation had become one of Scotland's biggest ever murder hunts, 
with some 3,000 people having been spoken to in that time, some 1,300 statements being taken, and 850 possible lines of inquiry being investigated. Security camera footage from the Palace Theatre on the night of the murder had also been painstakingly scrutinised, with the possibility that Mary's killer may have noticed her at the pantomime and followed her out being considered. Feeling this was a local crime, this is not a passing through killer, but someone from the area, it was Kilmarnock where the inquiries were focused, and detectives had even spent a week interviewing male pupils at Kilmarnock Academy, not discounting the possibility that Mary's killer may have been a fellow pupil whom she knew and would not have felt threatened by. In special year-by-year assemblies, the 1,072 male pupils of the academy were addressed by officers stressing how imperative it was that the person who had committed the crime was caught. Asking pupils with information to speak to guidance teachers, Lead Detective Sergeant William Shields added, Let us judge what's important. Tell us everything you know. The academy's then head teacher, Frank Donnelly, said later, Pupils have to be extremely careful. There is someone at large who could still be a menace to society. Indeed there was. Feeling the outrage and fear in the town, the Daily Record newspaper had by that time offered a £10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Mary's killer. And was there someone out there who did already know who it was, but was shielding the killer out of loyalty? Developments were about to suggest that there was. Ten days into the operation, on December the 27th, 11 days after the murder, a letter arrived on the Julian family doormat. Its postmark denoting that it had been posted in Glasgow the previous day, the letter, which was opened by Mary's dad, Philip, began with the chilling words, I think my son killed your daughter. The letter went on in its mere 14 lines of content, which has never been entirely released publicly, to say how the author's son was at the Palace Theatre in Kilmarnock on the night Mary was killed, and when he had gotten home, he told his mum that he'd done, I quote, something bad. The mum further revealed how she then found articles which fueled her suspicions, and which convinced her that her son was the killer that police sought. But the tormented letter ended with the author saying, Sorry, I can't give him up. I love him. Police hoped that this would be the key to finding Mary's killer. And in a second press conference held the following day, Maureen and Philip Julian sat hand in hand and begged her to do just that that she had claimed she couldn't. As Maureen sat with her head bowed, wiping away tears, supported by her and choking back tears himself, Mary's father Philip said, I'm asking for the writer to speak to the police. Just not knowing is getting harder and harder for us to bear. We can't get Mary back and put her to rest until whoever killed her is caught. If anyone has any suspicions about a son, a husband, a brother or a friend, then please contact the police. Please let me bury my girl. The couple were once again too distressed to answer any questions from reporters. Following the appeal, Detective Superintendent Lauder said the couple hoped seeing their distress would prick someone's conscience, telling the Daily Record, The letter is being treated very seriously, and if it's genuine, 
then it's vital we speak to the woman. We will meet her wherever she feels most comfortable. This woman is trying to protect his son and obviously hasn't come to terms with what he's done. She's very troubled. Now whilst he was virtually convinced that the letter was genuine, he did concede that the mum's letter could of course be a cruel hoax, adding, If that is the case, then we will want to speak to the writer. The letter came at a very, very trying time for the Julian family. Because some people do do some sick shit like that, don't they? For all sorts of reasons. It could be misguided wanting attention or just pure callousness. And then these things can proper devastate. They can waste valuable time and resources. They can even have tragic consequences. I mean, John Humble's actions are the obvious ones that spring to mind there, aren't they? The Daily Record newspaper the following day published this message to the author. Put yourself in the place of another mother, the mother of poor dead Mary. Think of the heartbreak she's enduring. Like you, her life will never be the same again. Your son's crime is too terrible for him to be allowed to go on as though nothing has happened. Come forward and tell the police, for the sake of every mother and every daughter. The author of this letter never came forward and the identity of the writer was never established. And incidentally, the letter and its content was ruled completely out of the inquiry a few weeks later. So, police now turned to another line of inquiry, hoping the breakthrough was to come through that tried and tested of methods, forensics. An examination of Mary's clothing that her body was found laid on had revealed several spots of blood on them. Now, a large portion of it was hers from the wounds that she'd received. But mixed in with this, there were spots of blood that when examined, bore a DNA profile belonging to a second person, a match for DNA that along with hers, was also found on a portion of white shoelace that had also been discovered at the murder scene. Armed then with what was most likely the killer's DNA profile, it was decided to proceed with the DNA screening of all the males in the Kilmarnock area aged between 14 and 60 with anyone refusing to provide a blood or saliva sample coming under further scrutiny. Police thinking, why do you refuse to do so if you've got nothing to hide? These samples would then be checked against the DNA profiles obtained from the murder scene, which would also be checked against DNA profiles from convicted sex attackers to try and ascertain a match, because with such levels of violence, there was no way that this was a first offence. They began by taking samples from those with the closest connection to Mary, apart from her father, and they tested male family relations and friends of hers, as well as her boyfriend Jim Caldwell, to eliminate them from the inquiry. Most men in the Kilmarnock area had no qualms about doing so, and were anxious to help, the crime having horrified the area so deeply. A neighbour of Mary's, John Connell, said, I'm all for it, since I knew the girl and have a younger sister myself. The murderers made everybody scared. Whilst another Samson Avenue resident, process worker Kenneth Todd, said, I've already been interviewed because of where I live, but I would definitely come forward to have this test. We must find out who did it. You wouldn't hesitate to, would you? Indeed, Jim's mother Moira summed it up best by saying to the Daily Record, Jim was happy to be tested. He'll do anything he can to help. Which must have been hard for him, 
but he still did it, wanting to help. Others too felt the same. Now, though ultimately DNA was to clinch it, it was instead sharp eyesight, a good memory, and an old-fashioned copper's instinct that led police to a suspect, which we shall find out about following a short word from the episode sponsors. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, in the current climate we face, it's no surprise that many of us are struggling, is it? Each of us has our own worries. It might be concerns about your family or loved ones, your work or your health or your relationships. It might be a mix of all sorts. And all you want is to find some balance in your life so that any clouds that may be there can go some way to parting. We all need help sometimes. And for whatever it is that's interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals, that's where better help can help you. Now, it isn't self-help. I must stress that. But what BetterHelp does is assesses any issues you may be facing and matches you up with your own selected licensed professional therapist for professional counselling. With a broad range of expertise available, some of which you may not find available locally, and with specialists in varying and vast range of issues, from depression to sleeping problems, then you can in less than 24 hours be communicating in a confidential, safe online environment without any of the uncomfortable feeling of sitting in a waiting room, because that's off-putting for anyone, isn't it? It's a service that's available worldwide, and it's a much more affordable one than traditional offline counselling. There's even financial aid available for the service if it's required. And once you've started communicating, you'll get thoughtful and timely responses from your counsellor, who you can message anytime, plus who you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com forward slash TCE. This episode is brought to you once again by Best Fiends, where the fun never stops and that I know once you play, you'll be as addicted as me to it. When I'm on a break from creating the show, if I've got a spare minute, then I'm storming through the levels in Best Fiends, the vibrant and fun puzzle game that you'll play. And once you discover the colourful world of minutiae that the makers of Best Fiends have created, you'll also discover that it really is the game for you, and you need look no further. It's a casual enough game that you can play and enjoy stress-free, yet is equally a puzzle strategy game that makes you think And each time I play Best Fiends, I find there's always something new to catch the eye. It might be new events, new challenges, or plenty of new levels to put your mind to, which I always like and I'm always impressed with. And so far, I've gone through hundreds of levels on it. I've been from the Mushroom Valley to the Celestial Springs, I've fired off rockets, I've destroyed slugs, I've collected diamonds, I've taken part in challenges, all sorts. And I've done them all by meeting and collecting interesting and colourful little characters such as Wilbur, Rose and Rascal to name but a few, all of whom bring their own unique little talents to help you progress. For the current times of social distancing we face, I found Best Fiends is also a perfect way to stay in touch with friends you can't see right now, as you can stay connected to them by playing alongside them, sharing your progress on the leaderboard, or you can just relax and enjoy playing it by yourself because you don't even need to have an online connection to do so. If you're totally over the same old puzzle games, then this awesome mobile puzzle game really is the one for you. It's so much more than your average. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. 
That's friends without the R, best fiends. By three weeks into the investigation into the murder of Mary Julian, the DNA screenings were still underway in the Kilmarnock area, but of course, other separate lines of inquiry were running parallel also. One of these was checking upon the current whereabouts of those previously convicted of sexual offences, anyone who'd been recently released from a sentence for these, and were living in or around the Kilmarnock area, which was a task that threw up a large number of delightful sounding such individuals, several of them names that were all too familiar to the long memories of the investigating team because of their crimes, and whose movements for the night of Mary's murder were being checked. Another line of inquiry was studying the entire CCTV footage from around the Kilmarnock area on the night of Mary's murder. And who knew, perhaps the two lines would intersect, one of these individuals would be spotted near the scene at the crucial time, thus giving police a specific person of interest to try and rule out of the inquiry. By Sunday January the 7th 1996, countless hours of this CCTV footage had been examined to no avail, but as veteran Strathclyde Detective Constables Willie Stokes and his colleague James Callahan were that afternoon viewing a security video from the Burns Shopping Mall for the night of December the 16th, which is only a stone's throw from the Palace Theatre, an all too familiar face to them popped up on the security footage. It was the face of someone known to them both, who they'd actually spoken to during the course of the investigation, and whose past crimes both detectives remembered for their horror and sheer brutality, and someone who'd served lengthy sentences for them. And the figure, clad in a checked shirt and dark-coloured jacket, appeared to be following someone in the footage. A young woman. The following day, DC's Stokes and Callahan knocked on the door of a bedsit in a shared house at number 16 Canal Street in the Ayrshire town of Saltcoats some 15 miles from Kilmarnock, and spoke to the occupant, 37-year-old Gavin Maguire, who had moved in just two weeks before, following a period staying with his mother following his release from prison at the end of November the previous year. Accompanying them back to the station, in the course of three separate interviews that day, Maguire admitted that he'd been in Kilmarnock on the day of the murder, doing some Christmas shopping, and had spent from 3pm to 10.45pm drinking in the now-closed Tudor Bar in Titchfield Street, staying there for the day without leaving. Having had between 7-10 to 10 pints of lager during this session, when he had left the bar, he claimed he'd made his way to a bus stop near to Kilmarnock Sheriff Court, and when the night bus had not arrived, had walked across to Irvine Road, where he'd hailed a taxi and headed back to his mother's house in Glencairn Street in Stevenston. Except this story was utter bollocks. He'd left the bar much earlier than claimed, because at 9.23pm, he was captured on security video in the Burns Shopping Centre, and was viewed very deliberately changing the direction he was heading in, turning and following a young woman who caught his eye. A redhead. There was a gut feeling from both detectives that Maguire could just be their killer, them considering the chances of two such horrendous individuals being independently about in the immediate area only minutes before Mary set off to walk home as being virtually impossible. He was certainly lying about his movements that evening. The video broke his alibi of being in the Tudor bar until he had claimed and that he took a different route home, 
and instead placed him in the vicinity of the murder at the crucial time. But they still needed more evidence, so it was over to forensics. On January 26th, 18 days after first visiting Maguire, both detectives returned to the flat in Canal Street and within minutes, Maguire had been arrested and was driven to Kilmarnock Police Station as a search team began examining his bedsit. Here, he was shown the video taken in the shopping centre and questioned about the discrepancies in his previous statements, but was adamant to police that he was not the man in the video, even though it looked the image of him and at that very moment, forensic scientists were examining a set of clothing taken from Maguire's bedsit that looked very much identical to those that the man seen on the security video had on. A red and blue checked shirt, a brown leather jacket and blue jeans. He chopped and changed parts of his story several times over this interview, but Maguire finally agreed that he may have left the pub earlier than 10.45pm, but certainly not before 10pm, and claimed that when he'd left, he could not remember being in the area of the mall, the convenient I don't recall what, so as he couldn't be said to be lying. He was later that evening charged with the rape and murder of Mary Julian. Now that's not police jumping the gun at all, amongst other forensic evidence, which I'm sure you get to hear about, although not as rapid as they are at doing it today, a DNA sample that had been taken from Maguire when he was spoken to on January the 8th had been analysed and was found to be as near perfect a match for the unidentified bloodstains found on Mary's jacket as can possibly be. Go get him. The following morning, Detective Superintendent Lauder confirmed to the press, After extensive inquiries, a 37-year-old man is in custody in connection with the death of Mary Julian. I would like to thank the media for their assistance throughout this inquiry. He also paid tribute to, I quote, the true community spirit of Kilmarnock's people in how they had cooperated with his officers and then told how he had immediately visited Mary's parents, Philip and Maureen, the previous evening to personally give them news of the arrest. He told the press conference on their behalf, The family do not want to say anything at the moment. They need some time. It's been a hard day for them. It must have been, eh, mustn't it? That same day, Maguire appeared at Kilmarnock Sheriff Court charged with Mary's rape and murder, before being remanded in custody and taken to Barlini Prison in Glasgow. Here, he was first placed into a ground floor cell in the prison Sea Hall, where that evening, a prison insider was later to claim, I quote, The cons went mental. They rattled their doors and shouted abuse all night. They were chanting, We're going to get you. Maguire was moved the following day to B Hall, which is a unit for prisoners whose cases were classed as sensitive but whilst he was here prison officials soon learned that so despised was the accused mary's murder having sickened the country so much that a contract had been placed upon his life already by underworld gang bosses offering a bounty of 30 phone cards or 50 temgesic tablets to anyone who was willing to knife him to death maguire was then moved once again this time to the surgery wing of the prison in a single cell under strict suicide watch, even being dressed in a special Velcro suit so he could not use strips of torn clothing to make a noose. An unnamed underworld source was reported as saying at the time, I quote, The surgery wing is the only place Maguire will be safe in this prison. 
He's been stuck in a strict observation cell well away from everyone, but he will not get out of jail alive. His stabbing has already been ordered. As we've said before, these crims despise sex killers, don't they? And sometimes there's no need for a trial with them. With her alleged killer in custody awaiting trial, the Procurator Fiscal ordered the release of Mary's body and a funeral was held on Wednesday, February the 7th, 1996. More than a thousand mourners gathered at Henderson Parish Church in Kilmarnock, only yards from the town's Palace Theatre where Mary had spent her last happiest moments, with more than 600 people packing the pews and hundreds more gathered outside to hear over loudspeakers the minister the Reverend David Lacey, describe her terrible death as the pinnacle of evil during a moving service. He told the congregation, Mary's murder is the evil at which we shiver now. This horrendous example and expression of evil is the pinnacle of the iceberg, the bit we all see and agree is evil. Good is good, bad is bad. There is a difference between right and wrong, but the fight against evil is every individual's fight, every society's struggle, a cosmic battle. Throughout the 40-minute service, Philip, Maureen and Claire stared at the simple white coffin adorned with a single red rose and a teddy bear wreath of pink and white carnations from them, its card bearing the simple message, Good night, sweetheart. All our love, Mum, Dad and Claire. Mary's boyfriend, Jim Caldwell's heart-shaped wreath, bore the message, In remembrance of Mary Julian, Lots of love, Jim, and was sealed with 13 lovingly written kisses, whilst the tribute from her best friend Julie Holland read, Forever Friends. People openly wept as the sounds of Mary's favourite song, Jennifer Rush's The Power of Love, spilled through the doors and down the flower-strewn steps of Henderson Parish Church, whilst as important people to Mary, Jim and Julie had joined the Julian family to watch as police officers saluted when four pallbearers appeared to take Mary on a final journey to Interral at Kilmarnock Cemetery. There, it was the signal for the floodgates of emotion to burst open for everyone, and the hundreds who'd lined the streets to pay respects, or to say a final goodbye to Mary, many of them having never even met her, but whose tragic tale had broken their hearts, wept uncontrollably as Philip and Maureen were helped to lay one yellow rose and one red rose onto the coffin. Maureen also placing a small cream teddy bear beside the floral tributes. Philip and eight other family members and friends, including Mary's boyfriend Jim, then took up the cords to help lower the coffin into the ground, but as it went in, Philip almost collapsed with grief and had to be steadied by an undertaker. Maureen and Claire also broke down as the coffin descended. It's unimaginable, eh? Poor, poor people. Poor people. When Gavin Maguire next appeared in court, this time at a preliminary hearing at the High Court in Edinburgh on the 15th of May 1996, where he was committed for trial, Gordon Jackson QC, defending, told the court that his appointed client denied each of the charges he was facing of sexual assault and murder. Maguire's trial was scheduled to begin relatively quickly for a murder trial, less than two weeks after this, on the 27th of May 1996. And we shall pick that up in the second part of the tale, as that's a perfect place to leave it for this time around. 
I know it's a bit shorter than usual here, but as I said, there's quite a bit to this tale, and it's the perfect spot to break it up at. I wouldn't cover half a trial in the episode to fill it out, or go into the background of things, but only cover half of it and say, oh, we'll carry that on next time. It's perfect for a two-parter tale, this is. And in the second part, I'll hopefully explain exactly why it's the case I selected for this series Monsters of episode, and I'm pretty sure that you'll agree. I thank you guys very kindly for joining me here today, as ever for another savage and tragic story, but one that I hope all the same you found both interesting and informative with it. And all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, thanks once again for joining me, and goodbye for now.